We will begin with our first reading in Malachi, uh, from chapter 2, from verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Now to John, chapter 2, reading from verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those he sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. Hi everyone, my name is Ben. I'm the music pastor here, but tonight I have the privilege of preaching the word of God to you. Let's pray together as we begin. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are with us now by your Holy Spirit. And you have come into our midst to purify your people. And we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might receive what it is you have to say to us, and that you might transform us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Be careful what you wish for. Have you ever 
got what you wished for and then realised what you wished for is not at all what you want. I guess a silly example is uh, Kevin in Home Alone. You know, I wish my family would disappear. And then, of course, they do. They forget him. They go on holiday without him. And it's kind of fun for a bit, but then it's pretty terrifying. This little eight- or nine-year-old boy doesn't know how to do anything. He goes to the shops and is so terrified by a guy in the shop, he runs out and forgets to pay. And, it, you know, it's, and these burglars trying to get into his house. It's terrifying. Be careful what you wish for. That's a silly example, really, isn't it? But, but what about us? What are our deepest longings and desires? What are our daydreams, the things we long for, the things we wish for the most? And what if, and this is, a, this is a hard thing to think about, but what if God doesn't give you that for your good? How do you respond in those moments? That's what's going on in, in the passage tonight. God says to his people, be careful what you wish for. You want the God of justice. You want the God of justice to come down and smite everyone. And I'm coming, and I'm starting with you. And the Lord says to us tonight, Jesus is is coming back, and he's going to purify his people. But don't fall into half-hearted patterns of worship. Don't make the day of Jesus' coming back any more terrifying than it already is. And that's, of course, been the big issue in Malachi, this kind of half-hearted worship. That's what's been going on. We've seen it over the last few weeks. God is confronting them, and he's calling them back to faithful worship. We've seen this pattern a few times. God has a statement. The people respond with a question, how are we doing that? And then God gives his evidence. So we saw two weeks ago, God says, I've loved you to his people. And they say, well, how have you done that? And he says, I chose you. Before you'd done anything, good or bad, I chose you and I set my love on you and I've, I've loved you. Or last week, God says, you show contempt for my name. And the people say, well, how will you show contempt for your name? And he says, you bring me all these defiled offerings. You, even your human leaders wouldn't accept this kind of thing. It shows what you think of me. You, you dishonor my name. And tonight in our passage, something changes because tonight we see what God's going to do about it. How is he going to respond to their half-heartedness? Well, they're asking for the God of justice, and he's coming, but who can endure it? We're going to begin just by looking at verse 17 of chapter 2, the first verse in Malachi there. So turn back to that if you haven't got it open, Malachi 2, 17. So this is the question and answer section, and what's going on here is God's people grumble against him. God's people grumble against him. Chapter 2, verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Now just notice about where that's directed. Who are they saying that to? It's not the Lord. It's not to the Lord. It's not even at the Lord. It's to each other. It's kind of behind God's back, if that were possible. They're groaning, they're mumbling, they're they're grumbling. It's not like in the Psalms, is it? In the Psalms, you have these these deep, questioning cries. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? It's not like that, is it? Because that's a direct prayer to God of of faith. This is not like that. This This is grumbling faithlessness, really. In fact, I'll tell you what it is. It's really atheism 
clothed like Christianity. And how on earth did they get to this place? They're grumbling against the Lord. Well, it looks like they're looking at their present circumstances now, which are pretty rubbish. We'll come on to that in a sec. They're seeing all the other nations around them who are doing just fine. And they don't worship the Lord at all. And their conclusion is not, I wonder if there's something wrong with how we're living for the Lord. And what about our obedience, our faithfulness? No, it's, it's, it's that it must be God. He's not upholding justice. Well, he needs to do that. That's why they're saying this. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, they think. Because they look at their circumstances and they say, well, look, we're the, we're the good ones, right? So we used to be this great nation. We used to have this King David on the throne and, and, and kings in his line. We had the promised land and it was huge and we kept expanding it and expanding it. We had the Lord in the temple with us. But now... We're a shadow of what we once were. We haven't got a king. We're controlled by all the other nations around us. So they're all doing fine and we're under their thumb. The promised land is a bit of a joke. It's now about 20 miles by 30 miles. It's like a little postage stamp on the map. You've got these great big nations all power around them and they're nothing. And as for the Lord, well, where is he? Where is he? He's certainly not in a temple. So they knew their history. They knew how it worked. Exodus chapter 40. Moses dedicates the tabernacle, which is like the mobile version of the temple. And when he dedicates it, the glory of the Lord falls. Same thing, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. King Solomon makes the the temple. He dedicates the temple. The glory of the Lord falls upon the temple. God with his people. And what happens in Ezra chapter 3 when this lot, this, that Malachi is writing to, they come back from exile, the temple's been destroyed, they rebuild it, they dedicate the temple, and nothing happens. In fact, there's a really weird and, and kind of heartbreaking scene in Ezra chapter 3. It describes this ceremony they have, and the older guys who were there when they saw the original temple that Solomon had made, they look at this one and they weep. They weep aloud because God is not there. God is not in the midst of his people. This is pretty miserable if you're in Israel right now. They experience all of that and then they look at the nations around them and go, well, they're doing just fine. They're prospering. But see, what they don't do is they don't come to God. They don't seek him in prayer. They don't ask, oh, I wonder, are we being faithful? Are we worshipping the Lord as he said? Now, what they do is they get in a little huddle uh, and they gossip about God behind his back and they grumble at him. Where is this God of justice anyway? I think probably he thinks evil is good. And the thing that's so troubling about that is there's a familiar pattern in my own heart and in our own hearts that goes on a lot of the time. You see, isn't this our experience too? We look at our circumstances and they're not as we'd hoped they'd be. Maybe spiritually you think, oh, I really thought I would have got further down the line with this sin by now and, and in defeating that sin, and I haven't, and doesn't God want me to do that? And, or maybe it's just that, you know, the, the normal things are our age. We, we're trying to live as a Christian in our job, and we keep seeing people who are worshipping themselves or their own success in their career, they're flying past us. And we're sitting there, I, you know, I thought God loved me. We're seeking that that next more influence more popularity more experiences and we see other people who aren't living for the lord doing much better than we are 
And, and maybe we ask, is God really for me? Why doesn't he do something? Where is he? And that's what they're asking as well, isn't it? Where is the God of justice? Or literally, where is the God of judgment? See, what do they want to happen, this bunch here? What do they want? They want God to come and smash all the other nations around them and to exalt them and rebuild the kingdom uh, so that they're seen as the good guys that they are. That's what they want, isn't it? All these people are doing evil. God, come, come and be just. Come on, wherever you are. And show them what justice looks like so that we can be, we can be seen as the ones who are, who are the, the great chosen ones. But you see, that reveals something about what they're thinking, doesn't it? They think if God were to come in justice, they would be totally fine. That they'd be gloriously restored, that all the other nations would be punished. And because that's not happening, they're pointing the finger at God and saying he's the problem. And they have totally misunderstood how they're meant to relate to the Lord. We saw this two weeks ago. Matt said that the underlying problem with all of these uh, question and answer things we see through Malachi is they just don't realize that God actually loves them. They've come to the conclusion that God doesn't love them by looking at their circumstances immediately around them and deciding it doesn't match up to what they want things to be. So they do their service of God. They do their worshipy things. They offer their, their bulls and their rams on the altar. But instead of coming to him and having a genuine relationship and bringing him the struggles and the difficulties and the disappointments of their lives, they grumble, they complain against him. And if anything, rather than moving closer to prayer, they become more estranged from him. And again, is that an experience that we know ourselves? They haven't heard the Lord when he's, he's told them, I, I've loved you, I have loved you. And the irony is, of course, if they, if they went into, lent into that and, and, and saw how unfailing and how hearted the love of God is, that they would, they would know and experience his love and care more, and they would see, even in the most bitter trials of life, that God is the faithful God. But instead, they've allowed their circumstances to sow this seed of bitterness in their hearts and they grumble against the Lord. You know, that same Lord has set his love on you, church. He chose you before the foundation of the world to be his. He sent his son to adopt you in his family at the cost of his own bloodshed on the cross. That is the love that God has shown you. So when you look at your circumstances and it all looks completely rubbish or when you look at the state of the church in this country and think what an absolute mess we are in. And then you see people who have absolutely no time for God, haven't given him a second thought and they're chasing after the gods of success, the gods of themselves and they're getting ahead of you. There's something in you that's saying just hedge your bets a little bit. You know, don't go all out on the worshipping God thing, okay? These guys out there, they're actually having some success compared to you. In fact, they're doing better than you in lots of ways. So by all means, keep following Jesus, but let's just be sensible about it, okay? So you know, cut back on some of the more fanatical things and hedge your bets a little bit. And what is going to stop you going down that path, which we see in this passage ends in grumbling and bitterness and destruction? 
remember how loved you are. Remember he is your father who is eager to hear about all your disappointments. Don't grumble behind his back. Come to him in prayer. And look, even if at first your prayers look remarkably like grumbling and they basically begin with Father God and end in Amen, but most of it is grumbling, that is at least in the right direction. And there is more we can grow into there. But start with that. And if you, if you just don't know where to start, remember this. He came to you first. In love, Jesus Christ came and he bled and he died. From one angle, his life was disappointing. But he trusted the Father and he leads us home to heaven. And he, of all people, can testify that your circumstances don't define the extent of God's love for you. They don't. I mean, look at this God. Such is his heart that he is wearied in this passage, not by people coming to him with the same disappointments, but by not coming to him. There is a warning here as well for us. When we find ourselves grumbling, and we kind of catch ourselves doing it at God, or kind of about our circumstances, which of course God is sovereign over, there's a warning for us, because grumbling is a sign that we might be half-hearted in our worship. When deep down we know that we're not being faithful in pursuing the Lord as we should, we're not going to ask ourselves the hard questions of, oh, am I, am I being faithful? Am I walking with the Lord? Because we know what the answer is. And it's just a lot easier to blame it on God and kind of take a step back from following him quite so fully, so wholeheartedly. We're on dangerous ground when we're grumbling against the Lord. So come to him who loves you and has poured and, and pour out your complaint on him, the psalmist. Did you know you're allowed to do that? You're allowed to complain to God. Psalm 142, verse 2. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. Will you try that? Rather than drifting off into bitterness and grumbling against the Lord, come to him and experience the God who is not wearied by you but loves you. Unfortunately, that is not what they do, it seems, in this passage. So we've seen that the people grumble against the Lord. We're going to see from chapter 3, the Lord Almighty will come to purify and to judge his people. So we return to that idea that they've assumed that they're the good ones and everyone else has got the problem and that the Lord's return would only be a good thing for them. Well, Look at what God's response is and see how that assumption turns out. He essentially says, okay, you want me to come? I'm coming and I'm starting with you. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? What's that day going to be like? Well, look at verses 2 to 3. They've got these two images here, the refiner's fire and the launderer's soap. And the point of both of them is God is coming with burning cleansing, burning cleansing of his people. And just remember as we go through this, right, he's not talking to the world out there. He's talking to his people, which today is the church. This is words to the church. 
the Lord will be like a refiner's fire. So you probably know how this works. Um, they heat metal to an intense, with intense flames and heat. And what it does is it draws out all the impurities and they rise to the top and they get rid of them. And just like that, says God, that's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to come with, with intense purifying fire to purify you. Or the laundress soap. Laundress soap back then was this incredibly strong soap. It would literally like burn the stains off of the clothes. And the Lord says, just like that, I'm coming and I'm going to burn away your stains. I mean, just look at the language of verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, that's the, the priests who are the mediators between God and the people. And he'll refine them like gold and silver. He's going to purify his people. And he's not going to stop there. Look at verse 5. This is quite strong, isn't it? So I will come to put you on trial. The people of God will come and now stand in the dock and the judge will be in session. And the first witness called will be, end of verse 5, the Lord Almighty or literally the Lord of Heaven's armies. And that little phrase, the Lord of Heaven's armies, is used more in Malachi than anywhere else. It's an important phrase because it gets at the immense power of our God. And what's he going to do? He's going to testify to everything they've done wrong and condemn them. This is God's people, remember. I mean, can you imagine the all-seeing, all-knowing one who is perfect in his justice, standing and testifying to everything you've ever done? I don't want that. And they get quite a shock when they see. They, they realise they're not the good ones after all. Look at verse 5. He's going to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. You see, God does care about justice. God does long for every wrong to be set right in this world. But that includes and starts with the people of God. And at root, all of this brokenness you see here between these people oppressing each other and all of that brokenness, it's because of their brokenness with their relationship with the Lord. You see at the end there, they do all these things, but do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The Lord is coming and it's going to burn. They think they're going to be fine. But their half-hearted worship has dulled their senses to their sin and the offence of their sin. And we have to ask ourselves, are we in danger of the same thing? But if you're not a Christian here tonight, I think there is something really admirable about this God here. He doesn't turn a blind eye to his own people. He's quite the opposite, actually. He starts his judgment with us as the church. He doesn't show any favouritism. And if you are here as a Christian tonight and you know in your heart that just like the people here in Malachi, your walk with God is half-hearted. Well, how do you know that? Well, you've kept on doing the outward things. You know, you're here tonight in church. You, you come along to the summer specials of your, your discipleship group. You know, you, you're doing the serving kind of things. But you know, and you can see the direction of your life is, is on a way that your heart is being pulled in two different directions. That's half-heartedness. And you've got to hear this, brother, sister, you've got to hear this. Where you've grown complacent 
in your Christian walk that maybe God has not done something that you hoped he would. And that's painful. But you're, you're using that as an excuse to be half-hearted and allow your heart to be captured by other things instead of being devoted to, to Jesus. That Jesus is coming back. Please don't take his blood for granted. Because the blood that has made you clean before God, which means you are holy and blameless if you trust in him, the process of making you more like Jesus and cleansing you from, from the very sins you're pursuing will be more painful if you keep pursuing them. But better that than you face the justice of the God of heaven's armies. Is it possible that your disappointments and the things that, that cause you to grumble at the Lord are, are loving discipline to make you more like Jesus? And I say that gently because these things hurt. I know that. But will you hear the Lord calling you back to himself and will you come to him and not withdraw and grumble against him? Because the result is beautiful. Look at verses three and four with me. This is a beautiful picture. Halfway through verse three, then the Lord will have men and women who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. Through this cleansing, you can offer the Lord acceptable, pleasing worship. You can please the Lord with how we live. This is who we were meant to be. And that is a beautiful picture. That question hangs over this though, doesn't it? Who can endure the face and facing the burning justice of the Lord? I mean, they're, they're pretty terrifying options and there's only two of them. Be purified or be condemned. Be refined or be rejected. Have your sin burned away or face the total justice of the Lord of heaven's armies. And that is particularly bleak when you're really honest with yourself and you know, as I do, that we're all a bit half-hearted at times. So is there actually any hope in this passage? Well, to see that, we're going to look to see what happens when the Lord does come to his temple, as he promised, because he does fulfill this promise. And first, his messenger comes to prepare the way for his coming. And John the Baptist in the New Testament says, I am this messenger that comes to prepare the way for the Lord. And just listen to how he introduces Jesus in Luke chapter 3. He says this, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see, that's very interesting, isn't it? It's the same thing. Jesus has come to purify his people and to judge. He's going to gather up his people. He's going to cleanse them and thresh them, you know, get rid of the, the dross and the, the bits you don't want and, and have them pure, but the, the, the chaff he's going to throw away. And then, of course, comes the day when the Lord does come to his temple and M read it for us. Jesus walks into the temple courts and what does he see? He sees all these people who are doing the outward bits of the worship. You know, they're selling the doves and the, all the things, they're changing the money so, so that people can worship the Lord, they say. But it's not that, is it? They're making a quick buck for themselves and Jesus is absolutely furious. And we read, zeal is for God's house consumes him and he rebukes the money changers. So this is John 2. He made a whip out of, this is Jesus 
This is Jesus doing this. He makes a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And that's the Jesus that's coming back soon. He will suddenly return to his temple, which, by the way, is us. Okay, so the New Testament, we read that we are temples of the Spirit. And more than that, the dominant thing is that we together, as the church like this, when we're gathered, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is, Jesus is here with us tonight. He is the one speaking by his Holy Spirit. And he is the one, even now, putting a finger in your heart of, of where you need to change, where I need to change. I thought you said this was going to be hopeful. Okay, I'm coming to that bit. You see, John the Baptist didn't just say he's got a winnowing fork in his hand. What else did John the Baptist say when he introduced Jesus? He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the innocent one who was put on trial. And they couldn't make any charges stick against him. But he stood in the dock and in your place... And he was condemned to die the death that we should face. And as he did, he faced the full justice of the God of heaven's armies for you. And by his blood, church, he has made you pure. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. See, that blood has paid not that you might go on in sin, but that you might be cleansed. His blood is the launderer's soap that cleanses you. And because of him, we can, just like this beautiful picture in Malachi th uh, chapter 3, we can offer worship to God that's accepted. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus suffered to make people holy through his own blood. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continue to offer God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and share with others with such sacrifices. God is pleased. And when he comes, Jesus, to return and, and right every wrong and judge the whole earth, you know you can stand. We know we can stand at that moment. Who can endure it? We can, not because of us, but because he has faced the God of justice and he has washed us white as snow. Jesus paid it all. We've been made completely right with God by the blood of Jesus and that is a wonderful comfort. But this is a warning too. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I ended there. We must, we must hear this. Just listen to this again, these images. The refiner's fire, the launderer's soap, the burning cleansing. Yes, Jesus' blood does wash us clean. Praise God. But we cannot make peace with half-hearted worship and expect you'll be fine on judgment day. You can't do that. If you try and do that, you've misunderstood how serious your sin is. And maybe your, your half-heartedness has blinded you to that. If, if you do that, if, if you make peace with half-heartedness in, in, in following the Lord and living for him, you've misunderstood the unbelievably high price that Jesus paid with his own blood. 
to cleanse you. And you've misunderstood the power of that blood to change you, to cleanse you, to transform you. The Lord is coming to his temple. He will cleanse his church. Jesus Christ will return. We will give an account for our lives. And we will either endure the burning away of our sin now, slowly, painfully, and and more painful the more we cling to it, or we face the burning justice of God. There is no easy route through this. But we will be safe as we hold on to Christ. So look, as we finish, if you're not a Christian here tonight, Jesus Christ says to you, I stood in the dock for you. You do not need to face this terrible judgment. If you would only come to me, come to me, please, and let me wash you. My blood is strong enough to purge all of your stains. I don't care how bad you think they are. My blood is strong enough to cleanse you. And look, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. Tomorrow might be too late. Come to him today. Come to him tonight. I would love to pray with you if you want to do that. And look, if you are a believer, come and see again the miracle of Jesus' work in you, how he's cleansed you. He has faced the burning justice of the Lord of heaven's armies for you. You could not possibly have endured that, but he has taken it for you. And he strengthens you to endure now as you're made more like him. With that salvation secure, he makes you more like him and it hurts. But he's at work. But please don't grumble against him. Don't don't turn to half-heartedness when things don't work out how you want. And be free to go and live wholeheartedly for him. Let's pray together as we finish. Lord Jesus, these are hard words for us to hear. Not least because they probe our hearts very deeply. And we know even now in our minds and our hearts, our half-heartedness, our, our wanderings. Thank you firstly, Jesus, that your blood is strong enough to cleanse us from every stain no matter how dark or deep they feel to us. I pray for our church that you would guard us from grumbling and that you would go on making us more like Christ, making us pure, making us holy. And that we would worship you wholeheartedly. Lord, when the disappointments of life come, help us to bring that to you in prayer. Would that not be the first step into grumbling against you? And we know that that day when you come will be terrible, but it will also be wonderful as you bring us home. Please would you keep us by the power of your blood, which we know is so strong, that we might endure that day and enjoy you in purity forever. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.